Good morning. We want to thank God once again for this uh, opportunity. We can come together as a church family to worship Him. You know, in our May series, uh, So Great a Cloud of Witnesses, is to study the lives of uh, great men and women of, of faith and the Bible verses that really impacted their lives so that we can see what it means to follow Jesus. But when you look at all these extraordinary men and women, you realize that actually they are very ordinary. What's extraordinary is the God that they worship. And so it's our hope that through this series, we grab this vision of Christ and His coming kingdom. Do you know that Jesus is coming again? And because of that, then what we see is not just this world, but the world to come. That we set our minds on, not on things on this earth, but things above. And then we won't be just be busy living our lives, but we will be busy living lives on mission. So today, we'll look at uh, this person called... Uh, last week, we looked at Hudson Taylor, and this week, we'll look at uh, a runner called Eric Little. Let us pray. Lord, we commit this time to you. I pray for Holy Spirit to convict our hearts that truly we learn to seek your pleasure, that we may see Christ lifted up and you glorified. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. The runners were gathering on the cinder tracks, taking up their position. In their midst was this 21-year-old Scottish man called Eric Liddell. He was also known as the um, Scottish... Oh my... I forgot. (laughs) Anyway, the Flying Scotsman. See, already, I cannot remember what I'm saying. The Flying Scotsman, right? And um, at stake was a position, if you won that competition they will be able to represent the UK in the year, the Olympics in Paris the year after. And so Eric Little had a good position. He was in the track beside the innermost one. And during the race, all the runners were trying to squeeze into the innermost lane. So smoothing his hair back, he looked around and he, no, he knew the names of all the runners, especially the one beside him, J.J. Gills, who was the fastest man in Britain at that time. So the countdown began. Three, two, one. One. And the athletes exploded forward, propelling their body ahead as they ran faster and faster, straightening up their bodies. And they tried as best to get in a good position. About 20 meters into the race, JJ Gills made his move. But instead of waiting for the opening, he just cut in front of Eric Little, and in an instant, Little found himself stumbling on the track, falling onto the wooden guardrail. The spectators cried out, Get up, get up! And by the time he got up, he was 20 meters behind the slowest runner. So he thought, this is impossible unless it is the will of God. So he started running, at first uh, pumping his arms like windmills. And then like a boxer, he began boxing the air in front of him as if the air was holding him back. Then he raised up his knees high like he was marching in a band. And finally, he threw his head back, staring into the sky. Now, it's an awkward posture. In fact, Little was known as the, amongst all the Olympic champions as the one with the ugliest running posture. But you know, it worked for him. He caught up step by step. And finally, with 40 meters to go, he was in third position. The crowd shouted for him. And he won the 400 meters race a full two meters ahead of J.J. Gills. 
So the reporters all swarmed around him, asking him questions. But one voice in particular particular, broke through. It was a young reporter who asked him, now that you've achieved the greatest desire of your life to be able to compete in the Olympics, what are your thoughts? Now, Little closed his eyes then, a curious expression came across his face. My greatest, the greatest desire of my life? Since young, I only have one desire. But how am I going to explain to the reporter, to the world, the lure of China when an Olympic gold medal dangles before me? Every time I think about my parents serving as missionaries there, I pray to the Lord that their calling would be my life mission. And I'm always filled with tremendous sense of peace and satisfaction. Now friends, if we were Eric Little, how would we choose between an Olympic gold medal and going to a foreign country serving a group of people that you do not know in a time when travelling around the world by boat? It comes down to this question, whose pleasure do you seek? Indeed, it is a question that all of us believers ought to ask every day of our lives, in our careers, in how we spend our time, our leisure, our money, our homes. Whose pleasure do you seek? Yours? God's? Or perhaps both? That is the question I would like us to think about as we look at 1 Samuel 2, 26-36. 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 26-36, to we will see two questions. The first is, whose pleasure do you seek? And then the second, the answer, the one who seeks God's pleasure. Whose pleasure do you seek? Secondly, the one who seeks God's pleasure. Verse 26, it says, Now the boy Samuel was growing in stature in favour both with the Lord and men. Now who is Samuel? His mother Hannah was unable to conceive. So every year she would make a trek to the tabernacle. That was before the temple was built, where the presence of God is. There she would pray and cry in tears. Now one year the high priest Eli rebuked her because he thought she was drunk. Then she explained herself and so he prayed for her and sent her away in peace. Now a year later, she gave birth to Samuel. And she promised the Lord, she made a vow that if she would give birth, the boy, the son, would belong to God. So from the time he was weaned, which is probably 8 to 10 years old, Samuel was sent to live with Eli at the tabernacle in Shiloh. And there he began growing. Now when you read 1 Samuel 1, 2, 3, this seems like a throwaway statement. Out of the blue, it just says, oh, talk about this boy Samuel. It doesn't seem much, but in the sight of God, it was the most significant thing to happen at that time. Why? Because 1 Samuel was set towards the end of the era of the judges. And you know the repeated phrase in judges, right? There is no king in Israel and everyone was doing what was right in their sight. So Israel was experiencing a leadership crisis, a moral crisis, a spiritual crisis. The last judge, Samson, I mean, he's very strong, but he lived in his flesh. Whatever women he liked, he slept with them. When he was unhappy, he just killed people. You know, he didn't take his job seriously as a judge of Israel. And he was a Nazarite, meaning um, he, as a Nazarite, they cannot touch dead things. They cannot drink and they cannot cut their hairs. So you know the story of Samson, right? In the end, when the, his, the, 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 his girlfriend, right, 
asked him, oh, can you please tell me what's the secret of your strength? Then he said, ah, cut my hair. And when they cut his hair, he really had no strength. You know? It's not because his hair was magical. It was because it was the third of the Nazarite vow that he hadn't broken. The first two, long ago, he already broken. Okay, so that was Samson. That was the spiritual atmosphere of the time of Samuel. And interestingly, Samuel is also a Nazarite. He took, the, his, at least his parents took the Nazarite vow. So in Samson, where Samson failed, God is raising another to take his place. So it was significant. Except the people of the time don't see it. Just like the time of Jesus, Rome was in control. Jerusalem was in chaos. But Messiah was born in a manger. But nobody knew, nobody cared. Just like today, friends, when we look around, we think about the pandemic, uh, the war, inflation, probable recession, you know, and all these things we're worried about. But do we see that God is also stirring the hearts of people? People are asking the big questions of life. Why am I? Why am I here? Who am I? And we have all the answers in the gospel. But do we care enough? Do we see what God is doing to share with those around us? That this is an opportune time. And so, the Lord sent a prophet as he made a statement that Samuel was growing. Then we switches to this to Eli, the high priest. The man of God came to Eli and said, Thus says the Lord, Did I not indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt in bondage to Pharaoh's house? Of all the twelve tribes of Israel, God chose the sons of Levi, the tribe of Levi, to serve him at the, at the temple. And of all the families in the tribe of Levi, he chose the family of Aaron to be the priests, meaning those that can come nearest to the tabernacle and later in the temple. So Eli was a descendant of Aaron. He chose Aaron to be a priest. He says, did I not choose them from all the tribes of Israel to be my priests? To do what? To go up to my altar, to burn incense, to carry the effort before me, and did I not give to the house of your father all the fire offerings of the sons of Israel? The responsibility of a priest is to minister at the altar of sacrifice. The only way for forgiveness of sin to be reconciled to God, to burn those animals, to burn incense, meaning to, to pray, to pray for Israel, to pray for the nations. The effort is a, a um, clothing. There's 12 precious stones representing the 12 tribes of Israel. Once a year, the high priest will put it on and go into the Holy of Holies where we are closest to God. He brings Israel into the presence of God. And God is saying, such an awesome responsibility and privilege and yet you and your family do not value it. See, Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas, you know, the women who came to worship, they will sleep with them. Exactly what was happening in all the other pagan gods, uh, worship of the pagan gods in that time. They will offer sacrifices and God has already set aside some for the priests and Levites to eat. And then the best, especially the fatty portions, you know, burn to the Lord. And even those, they wanted to take things that did not belong to them. And so they despised their roles as priests. So God says, why do you kick at my sacrifice and my offerings? Why do you scorn at them, which I have commanded in my dwelling, the tabernacle, to honour and honour your sons above me by making yourselves fat with the choicest of my 
of every offering of my people of Israel. They took what didn't belong to them. God already provided, but they were not contented. And Eli, as a father and high priest, he should have removed the sons, but he did not. He just gently rebuked them. And so God says, you honour your sons above honouring me. Therefore, the Lord of Israel says, indeed, I indeed, indeed say to your house and the house of your father should walk before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me. The priests at that time didn't understand, didn't value their role. But what about us? You know, as believers, we are called a nation of priesthood. We don't have the altar of sacrifice nor the incense, but it is our role to pray for the people, pray for ourselves. It is our role to reconcile people to God, the only way that sins can be forgiven through the gospel. But do we value that? Do we see it as an awesome responsibility or are we like that as God says we despise what the, what the privileges He has given to us? So the Lord made this statement. He says, those who honour me, I will honour and those who despise me, I will lightly esteemed. You know, Eric Little's coach, Tom McCracker, on the day where the, the um, schedule for the heats on the Olympics were released, when he took a look at it, he told his staff not to speak to anyone, especially the reporters, until he found Little. So he went out looking for him and found Eric Little at this quiet place and he showed him the schedule. And immediately, without hesitation, without a blink of an eye, Eric Little said, I'm not going to run in the 100 meters race. And that, he held the world record for the 100 meters at the time. Why? Because the heats was held on a Sunday. Now, it may not mean anything to us today. To us, it's like, what? But back then, they had a cultural war. The Western world had just began to hold sporting events, competitions on a Sunday. And devout Christians didn't want to partake because it was the Sabbath. So Little told his, his coach, you know, you understand, right? He nodded. Since the fourth commandment told us to honour the Sabbath, if I run, I'll be honouring myself, people, but not God. And if I can disregard this one commandment, what about the other nine? So he switched to running the 400 metres. That was a month before the Olympics. Because the 400 metres, you know, it was not held on a Sunday. But he didn't he wasn't even sure if he could medal in that competition because that was not his pet event. So his coach told him, you know the backlash you'll face, right? Eric Little was a media darling at that time because he was an amateur. The spirit of the Olympics, they, at that time, they didn't want people to be professionals, you know, like the US participants or from the other countries, you know. You, should, you need to be an amateur. And Eric Little, he just burst onto the seen about four months before and suddenly he was breaking world records. And so the media, you know, held him up as a hero that he will win many Olympic gold medals for Britain. So when he announced that he was not running, he was branded as a traitor to the country. Why would you not win all these honours for your country when you can? Why is it that other Christians run on Sunday but you would not? And little told his coach, he says, when Jesus called us to follow him, he never said it was going to be easy. And so running up to the event, it was this one verse that helped him. In Romans 10, it says, anyone who trusts in God will never be put to shame. 
on the finals itself, when he came out from his hotel room, the team monsieur came up to him and gave him a slip of paper. And he said, mumbled a few words and walked away. So Ali little shrugged. It's like, okay, you know. So he put the paper in his pocket, intending to read it when he reached the stadium. Two hours later, he was slumped over the chair in the dressing room. He was exhausted. He had ran many races within the few days and he wondered if he could finish the 400 meters finals. He reached into his pocket, felt a crumpled piece of paper, took it out and read it. And immediately, he breathed a thanksgiving to God. For the man wrote, in the old book it says, he that honours me, I will honour. Wishing you the best success always. First Samuel 2.30 was one of Eric Little's favourite verses. When we honour God, God honours us. Friends, it does not mean we'll get whatever we want, but that God will be responsible for the outcomes. It may not be what we expected, it may not be within the time frame we planned, but it is always, always going to be better than what we have planned and imagined for ourselves. So, we know what happened. He ran the 400 meters. Not only did he win the gold medal, but he broke the world record. You know, again, when I read this story, I was a very young Christian. Ah, you know, I don't know why I read all these books, you know. I thought, wow, I also can, you know. I also won. So, I said, I'm going to keep my Sabbath. Not going to study, you know, from Saturday night onwards until Sunday evening. Very good excuse. Then I'll go to fellowship, go to worship, go to choir, go to Sunday school, go to street evangelism, go street evangelism, go to evening service, then night service, and do all kinds of things, you know. Because I believe those that honor God, God honors. And my first job, my first salary, I gave to the Lord as first fruit offering, because I wanted Him to be in charge of my work. When we go overseas, which was quite frequent, I, when I introduced myself to the colleagues there, I would tell them that I'm a Christian. And so that I get a chance to share the gospel. But later I found that it was a way to protect myself. Because you know, after work, they always bring us to those entertainment places. And sometimes I'm tempted to go, you know, but because I've said I'm a Christian, I say, oh, I cannot, cannot. Because I believe that when we honour God, God honours us. And there was a relationship that was very important to me in college. You know? But after we got together, the girl said, you know, she made a vow to God to be single in her college days. And I thought, then why you want to get together with me, you know? And so I decided, I said, we have to break up. You know, for the rest of our college days, we'll be single. We'll just focus on growing in the Lord. And then after that, we'll see what happens. Well, it was very painful. During the three years, I struggled tremendously. But I believe that those who honour God, God honours. You know, when God gave me a burden for China, I decided to join a Chinese-speaking church. You know how terrible my Chinese was at the time? But I thought, you know, English is no problem, right? You want to share the gospel anytime you can pick it up. But Mandarin is a whole different thing. So I remember the first few years, I was like memorizing the content page of the Bible because I don't know how to flip. But those who honor God, God honors. I just think about it, you know, if I didn't break up with that girl, if I didn't go to a Chinese church, well, I wouldn't meet my wife. I wouldn't have my children, right? Especially the more special one here today. You know? When we honour God, the outcomes are, may not be what we expect. It may not come in the time frame we have planned, but it will always be far better than what we have imagined and planned for ourselves. God will be responsible. But it doesn't stop there. You know, the verse doesn't stop there. It continues. Those that honour God, God will honour. And it says, those 
who despise me will be lightly esteemed. What did God mean? Verse 31 continues, Behold, the days are coming when I will break your strength and the strength of your father's house so that there will not be an old man in your house. You'll see the distress of my dwelling in spite of all the good that I do for Israel and the old man will not be in your house forever. He says that in the tribe, firstly, Israel will have prosperous time under David and later Solomon. Okay? In your family, the Aaron's family, there will still be a priest, but not yours. And so, Eli's descendant, Abiata, the high priest, was removed. The last high priest was removed under the time of Solomon and he went to Eleazar, the another family line. Yet I will not cut off every man of yours from my altar so that your eyes will fail from weeping and your soul grief and all the increase of your house will die in the prime of the life. So God was good. Not all your children will die. You still have descendants. But this will be the sign to you which will come concerning your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. On the same day, both of them will die. How does Eli know that God will be faithful to what he said? He says he'll give you a sign. Both your sons will die. Both of them took the Ark of Covenant, went out to fight the Philistines and they were killed. And the Ark taken away. When the reports came back from the field to Eli, he was told that both his sons were killed. He was sad. But when the second report came that the ark was taken, he fell back and died. He died a broken man. Friends, let us not despise the words of God. We are His children. When we sin, we will still be His children. That doesn't change. But we'll miss out on the blessings of God. We'll be shortchanging ourselves. We'll be estranged in our relationship with God. Those that honour God, God will honour. The question is, whose pleasure do we seek? My own or the Lord's? There are always two ways presented to us. In the book of Romans, Paul presents it as the way of the flesh and the way of the spirit. The mind of a sinful man is death. The mind controlled by the spirit is life and peace. You are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit, if the Spirit of God lives in you. So how do we choose? But later, it goes on to say, it is this Holy Spirit that prays for us, that assures us of our adoption in Christ. So we say, do I choose my pleasure or God's pleasure? But there's not only just two ways all the time. There is a third, that we can pursue both when our pleasures are aligned with the pleasure of God. Philip Yancey said, over time, Christians got the reputation of being anti-pleasure. According to the stereotype, we grimace our way through his life towards the afterlife. The more we deny natural desires, the more spiritual we are. Is that so? God didn't give us desires so that we can renounce them and then become spiritual because of it. He gave us desires so that we can enjoy the life He created, the abundant life in Christ. And so it's not always two choices, my pleasure or God's pleasure. There is a third way when we align with the pleasure of God and we can pursue both. And that is why the psalmist says, delight yourselves in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your ways to the Lord. Trust in Him. He will do this. When our wills are aligned with God, delighting in Him, 
It gives us the desires of our hearts. The next is to trust, commit to God. So whose pleasure do we seek? Why is it that God can accept us and find pleasure in us in the first place? Is it because you know, we do good, do the right things? No, first and foremost, it is because of the one who pleases God. So in verse 35 and 36, the one who seeks the pleasure of God, God says to Eli, I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who will do according to what is in my heart and in my soul. Who is this? Who is this faithful priest? Samuel, right? He was talking about Samuel and then he told Eli, this little boy that you're raising is the one that I will choose. I will build him an enduring house. He will walk before my anointed always. The anointed meaning the king. At that time, there was no king, but later on, there will be. Samuel, the priest, will serve before the king. Everyone, Eli, in your house will come and bow down to him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread and say, please assign me to the one or the priest's office so that I may eat a piece of bread. He says, Eli, your family will come under Samuel. But this verse is not just about Samuel. It's a prophecy looking forward to the greater Samuel, the Messiah, because he says, I will build him an enduring house. Now, you know, Samuel's kids, unfortunately, were just as bad as Eli's children. Samuel did not have an enduring house. It's referring to the Messiah who will have an enduring house. Messiah who will come, Jesus. And so, when we look at how it describes Samuel, he grows in stature in favour and lot of men. Luke 2 describes Jesus the same way. Well, Samuel was a prophet serving before the king. The book of Hebrews tells us that Jesus is our high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek was the king of Salem, the king of Jerusalem, and priest of the God Most High. He met Abraham returning from the defeat of the kings and blessed him. So Melchizedek was superior to Abraham, who was the forefathers of Aaron. Hebrews is saying that Jesus as a priest is superior to the priest of Aaron. But he's not just a priest, he is king. Do you see that? Jesus is both priest and king. And it's because of what Jesus had done on the cross that today we can be accepted by God, that God can be pleased with us because it is in Christ who seeks the pleasure of God and in whom God is pleased and through whom we can please God. When Jesus was baptized, the Father says, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. So we go about life. How do we do it? trying to self-justify or to be justified in Christ. The Chariots of Fire is an award-winning movie in 1981. It is about the 1924 Olympics. The two main characters uh, both represented the UK and they won the gold medal. Eric Liddell, who is a devout Christian, won the 400 meters race. Harold Abrahams, who is a Jew, won the 100 meters race, the one that Eric Liddell didn't want to run in. And so in the movie, it focuses on the contrasting attitudes and lives of these two runners. Abraham is a Jew who had to prove himself every step of the way. Even in the finals, he was not expected to win. In one of the scenes, he said this, Now, in one hour's time, I will be out there again. 
I'll raise my eyes and look down that corridor, four feet wide, with ten lonely seconds to justify my whole existence. But will I? He's saying that race, he has ten seconds to justify, to find a reason for his existence. You know, imagine living life this way, how tiring it is. They were constantly trying to justify ourselves, proving our worlds. But you know, sometimes we are like that too. We try to just self-justify in our work, in our relationships, from our children. And when something goes wrong, our whole world collapses. I have a friend who is a pastor. He, had a terrible, he has a terrible relationship with his son. Because from young, he always scolds his son even though he's a very calm person. So even his wife don't understand, you know. So one day, and this is much, much later, he told me, he says, you know, after much reflection, I realized that all my life, I have been the good son in the family. I've been the one that my parents relied on. And unconsciously, I projected this on my son. So every time when he was at my parents' place, just because he misbehaved a little bit, I get triggered and just explode on him. You see, he was justifying his existence based on his role as the son. How are you justifying your existence? What gives you pleasure? What gives you a sense of self-worth? Are we seeking to self-justify? Are we justified in Christ? Eric Little, in another scene, he said this, I believe God made me for a purpose, but He also made me fast. And when I run, I feel His pleasure. Little understands that he is already justified in Christ and what he does is a response to God. When do you feel the pleasure of God? You know, when I was working as an accountant, I've, I enjoyed my work. Went to corporate banking, I enjoyed my work. But it is only, you know, when I really understood this, this, this sentence? It was when I began to teach the Word of God. When I'm preparing, when I'm preaching, I feel the pleasure of of God. I feel this is what I'm made for. So the question is, what are you made for? It could be fulfilling your client's request. It could be teaching children. It could be serving as church at church. Question is, how, when do you feel the pleasure of God? 1 Samuel 2.30 26 to 36 Let us see that it's not just two choices choosing between my pleasure or God's pleasure, but both when our pleasures are aligned. And it's aligned because of the one who seeks the pleasure of God, because of Jesus Christ. What we do in response, then we feel the pleasure of God because we're doing it for Him. Eric Little eventually ended up as a missionary in China. When the World War II broke out, you know, he sent his family home, but he continued to live in China to serve the people. Eventually, Japanese came, captured him, was thrown in an internment camp. A few months before the end of the World War, he died of a brain tumor and because of malnourishment. If he had been in a more comfortable environment, he would have lived longer. In 2008, the, during the Beijing Olympics, the Chinese government revealed this story that there was a prisoner exchange between the British and the Japanese and Eric Little was one of them. But he gave up his freedom for a pregnant woman. 
And today, you know, in Weixian, in Shandong, there is a statue of Eric Liddell to commemorate his life, of his contributions to the Chinese people. One of the eyewitnesses in the internment camp said he had never seen anyone like Eric Liddell who combined, humbly combined, muscular Christianity with radiant godliness. Just Liddell's life was about knowing Jesus deeply and making him known widely. He caught the vision of Christ. Friends, Christ is coming again. If we don't see that, I tell you, every day we'll be just dealing with our existential problems. Work, stress, money, children, studies. We'll never lift our heads to see beyond that. But when we catch the vision of Messiah, of Christ, and His coming kingdom, then we will not just be focused on this world, but the one that is to come. We will set our minds not just on things of the world, but things above. And we will not just be busy living lives, but we will be busy living life on mission. Those that honours God, God will honour them. Let us pray. Father, once again, we open your word and we are so grateful. Grateful for Lord Jesus, what you have done for us. It is in you that we can please God. Oh Lord, I pray that your spirit will convict our hearts. Help us to see this vision of Lord Jesus, you and your coming kingdom. The reality that you are coming again. So that our eyes will not be on the pandemic on the war, on, on the inflation, on our problems. But Lord, you created us for a purpose. And in doing so, we will experience your pleasure. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Come church, let us stand.